friends? All right, welcome. We're glad you're here. Hello, Plano, and hello, Fort Worth. And uh, it's great to be my friends in Dallas. We are in the middle of a series called The Seven, where we're looking at just seven essentials, seven things that we're saying, you can't mess with these things. You've got to get these things right. Well, let me just tell you, I have learned over the course of years of leadership that there's certain things that I can't mess up, and if I don't get it right, I'm going to hear about it, all right? And what I hold in my hand right here um, are pages of a Facebook string, and there were comments that uh, happened last year on Christmas Eve. There was an event that we uh, famously now call, based on the hashtags on this uh, little Facebook string here, hashtag Candlegate. 2017 at Watermark. All right, my friends Kyle and Missy Richardson, who I love, um, Missy uh, actually posted on Instagram uh, this picture of her family. It's a great picture. And uh, this is what the little line right here says. She's, that's a beautiful family Christmas Eve. But her comment specifically here is, hey, we had a great time Christmas Eve, but I want to let you know I missed most of the service because I couldn't help my kids recover from the fact that no candles were going to be lit at Watermark this particular Christmas. And then it went on from there. All right, uh, and so there's this comment string. Here's some of them. What? No candles? Another one. This is a huge bummer. That is one of my favorite parts of the service. Basically, she writes, "It's why I'm a Christian." You know, I go. It's kind of what. That's, that's the basic effect of this entire string right here. All right. Somebody came up and asked me afterwards, okay, why, I, uh, why we didn't have candles, and I just because of kind of my message this year talked about the fact that. Um, that the, the, the beauty of Christmas lights is it anticipates the hope that has come, and the purpose of Advent is to anticipate the fact that Christ is coming. Okay? And, and, I, and I made the point. I just said, hey, can you imagine how much we would appreciate Christmas if kind of we have this thing called Lent right before Easter, where what we traditionally in the church have done is that we deny ourselves some aspect of food. It's, it's come down to now where we make kids in elementary schools eat fish on Fridays before Easter. Okay, but, but for a while, people said we're going to give up meat for Lent or things like that, and, and it's a way of sacrificing to anticipate the sacrifice that Christ made. That's the whole purpose of the Lenten season. Advent means to come, and it's the anticipation of the coming of the light of the world. That's exactly what the prophet said in Isaiah chapter 9. You know, it just says the people who are in darkness will see a great light, right? And so I was talking about how it was Advent, and Christmas Eve is not Christmas. And so I said, well, it's because Christ hasn't come yet, so the light of the world's not here. So theologically, we're not going to light candles anymore on Christmas Eve. Only at the 11 o'clock service when we sing Silent Night and it becomes midnight, then we'll light them because it's Christmas Day. And some people bought it because now the string starts to go right here. Well, Todd said because it's not Christmas yet. It's still Advent. That's why we're not doing candles. <laughs> Somebody else speculated, is this a budget problem? BYOC, <laughs> right? You know, bring your own candles next year. And, and they go through, and some of these comments are hilarious. One of them is just like, no! We're going to grandma's church. That's basically what happens right here. So there are certain things you can't do as a leader. Apparently, once you give people the taste of candles on Christmas Eve, you can't take it from them, all right? Now, let me tell you, we started doing candles here at Watermark because it is the only decent memory. I get it, all right? That was the only day of the year I wanted to go to church because I got to play with fire. And, and so um, I always remembered it, but I, the, what I really remembered was the picture and metaphors and illustrations are so powerful because of what they burn into our hearts. God is the master teacher. And so he teaches a lot in stories and in parables. 
And he uses object lessons to teach us something. But can you imagine if it was the tradition, right, that everybody every Christmas, what we just basically did is we said, hey, we're going to all put our Christmas lights on, but nobody turns them on until Christmas Day at midnight. And if we really wanted to get out there, what if we as a discipline, as believers, said, we're going to use no electricity in December until the 25th? Oh, man. Would it be Christmas? You couldn't wait in the rejoicing that would come. Well, that's where we are in this series. We have talked about some essentials, man. We've talked about how this is not a, 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 a rule book. It's not, it's not a, a book that you should pay some attention to that maybe you buy or don't buy. Okay, This book is your life. And we talked about if you've got a wrong view of God's word, that God's revealing his mind to you, that he's explaining history. Everybody wants to know, why are we here? Where do we come from? What's our purpose? What's our meaning? Where is this all going? Why is there evil? Man, if you've got a wrong view of God's word, it's going to mess with you. And we talked about that week one. Week two, we talked about if you have a wrong view of God because you don't pay attention to this book. What a man thinks about when he thinks about God is probably the most important thing about you, which is why you want to read God's book about himself and how God has revealed himself in the context of history. The greatest way that God has revealed himself was the next week is through his son, who's the visible image of the invisible God. And when his son was done with his work here on earth, uh, revealing who God was and the love of God and the kindness of God and the justice of God, he didn't leave us as orphans. He gave us his spirit, which is even better than giving us Jesus. But the reason we have the spirit is because he gave us Jesus. Who did he give Jesus and who did he leave the spirit with? The answer is man. And we talked last week about man. Now, let me just remind you of what that amazing message last week taught us. Here's where we uh, explain to you who man was. We used the idea of image and gender and mission. In other words, that man was created in his image and God wants us to relate to him and relate to one another and to create things that will give him glory. He wants us to know that he designed us a specific way and then we're at the sum of our desires. We are who God created us to be and that we are on mission to live for God. But sin entered into the world and so we've gone and said, no, we're not gonna relate and create. We're gonna, have, we're gonna be depraved and enslaved. We're not going to relate to each other anymore, and the things that we're going to create are not going to be glorious. We're going to create trouble in this world. Our gender, male and female, we're not going to say it's part of God's design. We're going to say, hey, how we express ourselves sexually, even who we are sexually, is going to come down to who we are. This is what, let me just say this to you real quick. The Bible talks about how the fact that the world professes to be wise become fools. I read a story this week about something that happened in England. A guy was um, prosecuted for the crime of rape, which is an awful crime. And yet, what he did is he said, I'm going to identify as a woman. And so by their own law, they were obligated to place him in a prison with women. And guess what he did when he's in a prison with women? And you're like, are you kidding me? They put a rapist in a women's jail because he said he was a woman? Yes, they did. And what do you think they got? Professing to be wise, we become fools. It's crazy. God said, I want you to live for me. And we said, no, we're going to live like God. So we're going to do what we want to do. It's going to make sense for us. And we don't care really how stupid it gets. It's getting pretty stupid. And so God just kind of leaves us in this state, right? No. What you're going to find out is that this week, what we're going to talk about is salvation. And we want to give you a biblical view of salvation. 
Because this is the week that it all points to. This is the week that hope has come. The light is here. And how we get back from here over there, John did an amazing job last week of showing us and, and without getting there, because it's a message you got to give, but it's a message you kind of get right to the precipice. You don't want to give the solution, but we just showed you this, is that the hope has come, that Christ has been the provision that has bridged the gap of sin and death and brought us back to God, that the cross is what reunites us to God. And because God has um, brought us back to him through the sacrifice of the son, we now understand truth and we now begin to live and relate to each other in a redeemed way, those of us that know God and the beauty of his way. We live according to his design and we live for God and not like we are gods. That is what salvation produces. That is what salvation has wrought. People that are in great darkness have been given the light and oh my, what rejoicing it should bring. This is our, our, our statement this is what we as elders believe. You must believe if you are going to be a straight thinking, orthodox, if you are going to have straight law, straight dogma, straight truth, then you will believe this about salvation. There's some tough stuff here. Watch this. We believe salvation is a sovereign gift. In other words, it's given to us by God for his glory. It's a sovereign gift of God. It is received by man through a personal faith in Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for sin. We believe man is justified by grace through faith apart from works. We believe that Jesus Christ is the only means of salvation and that no one is saved apart from a conscious and personal decision to trust in Christ as his or her one and only savior. We believe all true believers, elect of God, once saved, are kept secure in Christ forever. And if you and I understood that and believed it to be true, we would start clapping in the middle of those statements and we would not stop clapping <laughs> and responding to that truth. Folks, this is really good news. It is the gospel. The word gospel means good news. That's, what, that's literally what it means. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses one through four, this is what it says. Paul says, now I make known to you the gospel, the good news. And so many people don't know the good news. They think this is a rule book. They think that they've got to earn their way to God. They think that God's still mad at them, but he's not. He said, I, I, I made known to you the gospel which I preached to you, which you received. That's the first thing I want you to see about the gospel, about the, the truth about salvation, is it's, it's there, whether you do something with it or not, but just knowing it's there will not change your life. It must be received. Not only must it be received, it is that upon which you stand when you, you talk about what allows us to stand against all the um, criticism and persecution and, and seduction of the world and, 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 and the fact that we're fools in the way that we hold on to this. It says in our armor, not only do we have the helmet of salvation, but it says that we stand firm. We shot our feet with the gospel of peace. We don't backtrack when we screw up and the enemy says, who are you to represent God? Our answer is nobody. We're rebels. That God in his kindness has sought and pursued and wooed and provided for. And I have received redemption. And so I am not shaken. I stand firm, not in my own righteousness, but in the righteousness that Christ has won for me. The gospel is to be received. The gospel is what allows you to stand. 
and it is by which you are saved. I'm gonna make it very clear because really what I wanna do tonight is I'm gonna just answer just some basic questions about salvation. I'm gonna tell you what it is. I'm gonna tell you why we have it. I'm gonna tell you how we get it. I'm gonna talk about can we lose it and I'm gonna talk about how we know it's truly ours. And we're gonna do it quick. This is the gospel. Isaiah 53, six says, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned our own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all, all of us who are not relating in peace and creating things that are glorified to God, all of us that are living as rebels, all that judgment has fallen on Jesus. He has made, it says in Romans, the wages of our sin, what we earn by being rebels against God, The wages of sin is death. We have separated ourselves from the life-giving God, and so we get death. We have separated ourselves from the source of light and life, and so we get darkness. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. God has demonstrated, Romans 5, 8 says, his love for us, and that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. Paul wrote to the church in Corinth and he said this, for you know the grace of the Lord Jesus, right? You remember what he's done for you, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that you might um, through his poverty become rich. A little early in the same book, he just basically says this. He says um, that that, uh, he made him, Jesus, who knew no sin to become sin on your behalf, that you might become the righteousness of God in him. He tells us in John chapter five, verse 24, he says, you need to believe this truly, truly listen to me. The one who hears the word of Jesus, Jesus says this, the one who hears my word and believes in him who sent me and knows that God is good and demonstrates his love by sending me. You have eternal life. And you won't come into judgment. You've passed out of death and you're moving into life because I'm going to reconcile you with him. Peter couldn't keep his mouth shut. He said, for Christ died once and for all. The just, Jesus, for the unjust, in order that he might bring us, having been put to death in the flesh, it says in the scripture, but made alive in the spirit so he could bring us to God. Oh, what a glorious savior. What an amazing truth. We are saved by grace through faith. And I'm gonna teach you, even that gift of faith is not of ourselves, it is a gift. Not as a result of works. Not as a result of our own brilliance. So that no man should boast. He saved us, Paul writes to his young disciple Titus. He saved us not according to deeds which we, you, any of us have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. by the washing of the regeneration that happens when we come back into a life-giving relationship with God and by the renewal that happens through the Spirit. That, my friends, is the gospel. And it is good news. It has nothing to do with you and me. We say in our statement, salvation is a sovereign gift. It is not earned or deserved. There's nothing that you and I can do. So salvation, what is it? Salvation is a class term. And underneath it, there are three things, because there's really three different parts to the gift of salvation. The first thing is justification. What is justification? Here's an easy way for you to remember what salvation is. It is, first of all, a a legal declaration, not guilty. No longer will you have to receive the judgment 
for um, your crime, the wages for your debt. Why? Because it's been paid. Because somebody else stepped up and took the payment and took the judgment for you. God didn't just wink at sin and just say, I love you, so ah, don't do that again. God said, no, there will be judgment and all of it will be poured out. And it was on his son. Justification is freedom from the penalty of sin. That's what justification is. And the Bible says you have been justified. It's something that has already happened in the past. Salvation is number one, justification. Number two, it is sanctification. Sanctification is an ongoing process. Justification, freedom from the penalty. Sanctification, freedom from the power of sin. Now watch this. This is where we are. Those of us that embrace this truth, not just intellectually, but who ingest it, who become one with it, who trust in it, who believe in it, we are being sanctified. We have been justified, declared righteous by God. We are being sanctified. What's that mean? It means that now, just like we've been delivered already from the penalty of sin, we are being delivered from the power of sin. It is still there in our life. In other words, the, 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 the seduction of sin, the, the propensity to sin, the, um, the, the, the corruption of our flesh that wants to rebel against God, our flesh is still here. But what is also here now is an understanding of the goodness of God and his way. And so I'm no longer a slave to sin. I can consider myself dead to it. Even though my body and my flesh isn't, my spirit knows that God is good. And so I will bridle my flesh. I will consider it. The word in scripture is logizomai, right? You remember in math, you would learn logarithmic tables where you would calculate truth. What Paul says is calculate, consider the truth that you are no longer a bondage to the enemy who has told you lies about God. You now have come to know the truth of God, that he's a gracious God. He's demonstrated his love for you. He's delivered you from judgment. What kind of God would do that? Answer the God that has your best interests in mind. Proverbs 10, 22, one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible says this. It is the blessing of the Lord that makes rich. And he adds no sorrow to it. All his ways are peace. And so now, even though my flesh is still very attractive to the world, which it was birthed into, and though my flesh has not yet been redeemed, my spirit has. And I'm not going to be conformed to the ways of this world, but I'm going to be transformed by the renewing of my mind. And I'm going to live in the good and acceptable and right and perfect way of my father. Now, I don't do that perfectly. Sometimes I'll go to a Christmas Eve service and they won't have candles and I'll freak out. And there'll be six pages of Facebook banter about how our church has fallen away. We all do things every now and then that make no sense. And we go back, and even though we don't have to sin anymore, we choose to sin. We choose to not live in light of our faith. And so salvation, though, covers this, this event that happened, the justification on the cross, that you receive the moment that you believe not just intellectually say it's true, and I'll get to that, but who fundamentally return to God and acknowledge your sin. And then you are being sanctified. You learn more of his ways. You're admonished and encouraged and helped. You, you go and you run with God's people. Now, let me just tell you, 
that every now and then someone will show up here and we'll get notes like this. This is the note we received. It said, hey, um, I attended your service and you've got a problem. Approximately, approximately 20 to 30% of your body arrives halfway in to your one hour and something minute worship service. That is outrageous. When and if you choose to fix this, please let me know and I will give you another try. It reminds me of uh, something I read recently. One of my favorite little websites is the Babylon Bee. If you don't know what that is, it's kind of the onion for believers, right? And it talks about like a guy who, uh, who said that he's not part of a local gym because he's a part of the inverse, invisible universal gym. And so he doesn't need to join a local gym because the last local gym he went to, he went in there and not everybody was perfectly fit. Isn't that silly? Can you imagine not going to a gym because everybody in the gym wasn't perfectly fit? First of all, what do we say about churches, right? If you find a perfect church, don't go there because you'll ruin it, right? If you find a gym of perfectly fit people, don't go there because you'll ruin it. The purpose of a gym is to help people get in shape, right? The purpose of the church is to help us be delivered from the power of sin in our life. And so we teach, we remind, we encourage, and we help each other. Can I just tell you something? Watermark is filled. It's a healthy church. And because it's a healthy church, it's filled with unhealthy people. There are people that kind of get around to God when they want to get around to God, that sometimes come and sing songs to him and leave here, and they don't walk with him the way that they should. One of the signs of maturity is that you had the ability to reproduce. If you are reproducing, then you will have immature people in your midst. Immature people in your midst do some disturbing things. Now, it's a problem if the most mature among us are flipping about spiritual things. It's a problem if people are being sanctified here and we're not being increasingly conformed in the image of Jesus Christ. That's a problem. But it should never surprise you that there's still some people who dress inappropriately, who still act in petty ways, who are in your community group that are not yet, the third thing, glorified. There's going to be a day when we're going to be delivered from the presence of sin. That's the third thing. Salvation is a class of justified people who have been delivered from the penalty of sin, who are being sanctified, who, have, who are being delivered from the power of sin, and who will be glorified one day, delivered from the presence of sin. But we ain't there yet, Toto. It's still Kansas. And there's still dysfunction on the farm. But the longer you hang around with it, and the more we pay attention to this book, the more we're going to bring glory to our God and his leadership in our lives, and it's going to become a more glorious place. Question, why do we have this gift? Those of us that have been saved, why do we have it? Now, this is going to be a little bit difficult for some of you because I'm going to introduce something to you that you may not like, but that's okay because it's true. And that truth is this. It's a sovereign gift. And it's given to the elect of God. People sometimes ask me if I'm a Calvinist, and I go, I don't want to call myself a Calvinist. I would like to call myself a Biblicist. I am attentive to the word of God. And the word of God teaches that there's only one reason that I know him. And it's not because I'm smart, and it's not because I'm good. It's because he is gracious, and he has chosen me. 
He foreknew me before I was born. He predestined me to come to belief. Now, if you're out there and you're listening, you're like, well, God, that's great, Todd. What about me? Right? Am I chosen? Am I elect? Am I predestined unto salvation? I said, I don't know. But I would offer you this. Come. Well, how do I know if I'm elect? You will believe. Well, I can't believe if I'm not elect. That's true. So come. The Bible has no problem with what appears to be tension between this thing called divine sovereignty and yet absolute human responsibility. Let me just show you this. I could do this with dozens of places in the scripture. I'm just gonna do it with three to make my point. I'm gonna do it some places where it runs up right against each other. This is Matthew chapter 11, verse 25 through 27. Listen to this. I praise you, Father. This is Jesus talking. Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things. What? These truths about who I am and how I've reconciled man to God. That you've hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, Jesus says, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son, me, chooses to reveal it to him. What is that teaching? What's that sound like to you? Divine sovereignty or human responsibility? And the people said? Sovereignty. Election. What do you think the next words are out of Jesus' mouth? Well, let's read it. Verse 28. Come. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. All of you, take my yoke upon me and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for yourselves. Here's the truth. Let me just insert this right here. Here's the problem. Too many people think that we chose to bless God by going, okay, <laughs> you win. You're better than the devil. I choose you. Here's the truth, though. We are so wicked and so depraved that none of us would ever choose God no matter how bad our life gets. Unless God in his kindness predestines prohorizo, the Greek word, sets a boundary on our own pain tolerance to where eventually we'll go, I am sick and tired of being sick and tired. And there's Jesus in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 saying, come. You're sick and tired of being sick and tired, come. Watch this, John chapter one, verse 11. He came to his own. Who are his own, by the way? The answer is every single person. There's one God, one Father, one Lord. We're one blood. There is one creator. He came into his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. Now, it's specifically talking there to Israel that he has especially revealed himself to, but he's talking about he came to his people. But as many as did receive him, he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believed in his name. Is that divine sovereignty, or is that human responsibility? And the people said, that is human responsibility, because they received him. Anybody who received him, he gave the right to become children of God. And then he'll tell you in verse 13, these individuals were men born not of blood. Right there, same verse. In other words, they weren't born into Christianity, nor of the will of their flesh. Their mama didn't say, I'm going to make you a Christian, nor of the will of man. They didn't determine that they were going to be a Christian, but the kindness of God allowed them to see. Do you see how divine sovereignty and human responsibility are right there together in the exact same verses? I'll give you one more. Acts chapter 2, verse 38. It's the very first message the church ever preached. And as, he, as Peter preached, and he said, repent and turn from your wicked ways. And each of you then respond to it and, and go through this outward sign of your inward faith. Be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you're going to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit when you believe. 
for the promises for you and your children and for all who call on the Lord our God. The people right before that in verse 37 said, what must we do? And he said, you must believe. And then he gets through and he calls them to all repent. But he says there at the very end in verse 39, he says, as many as are the Lord, God will call to himself. Look, it's like this, right? This is the way heaven looks. Okay. Heaven looks like this. It's like a banner. When you're, when you're um, coming to heaven, you will see this. And the banner should go up right now. And the banner basically says, come all you who are weary and heavy laden. And God would throw that banner up for you. And you say, anybody can come. Anybody can have that. It's right there. Come all of you. All right. But as I walk underneath that banner into heaven, I'm going to turn back around. And this is what the other side of the banner says. Welcome all you chosen of God. Now, here's the thing you need to understand. God does not keep anybody out that doesn't choose him. But nobody would choose him unless God did some special work in. To which you would say, well, how can I get God to do some special work in me? Answer, right now you're listening. Respond to his grace. That he made him who knew no sin to become sin on your behalf, that you might become the righteousness of God in him. Get sick and tired of being sick and tired and respond to who he is. How we receive it is by grace through faith. It is a gift of a sovereign God and it has nothing to do with you and everything to do with you. By the way, I think the Bible and God knew that men would have a problem with this. And so when you get all the way through the book that talks about how God initiates, God pursues, God's the one, God's the one. The last words in the Bible are come sinner, all of you, come, come, come. In fact, God also does this. Those that have come to know him, he leads in the world to still be tormented and tempted and suffer in a broken world. And he says, you suffer as my children the way my son suffered for you. You suffer and you make your life about mission. And you tell people who don't know. You live your life in such a way that they see you as redeemed and they go, what do you know that I don't know? And the answer is the goodness and kindness of God. How do we get it? How do we get it? Well, let me just um, tell you this. We get it this way. We get it by faith. We trust in the history of God. This is not a rule book. God does tell us how we should live so we don't suffer. This is a revelation of his kindness in the context of human history. You can test it. It is not nonsensical. It can be verified. And in the context of history, as Secundus and Tacitus and Josephus and other secular historians will tell you, as Simon Greenleaf, who was one of the greatest legal scholars that ever lived, who has looked at the record of history and said, if there's any event in history that we can trust in, it is the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so you get it by believing. It is possible to know you're saved. First John chapter five, verse 11 says, this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life and his life is in his son. He who has the son has the life. He who does not have the son does not have the life. I've taken the time to write these things to you, verse 13 says, who believe in the name of the Son of God that you might know that you have eternal life. It's why when we ask you these diagnostic questions and we say something to you like this, on a scale of one to 10, how certain are you that you're going to heaven? If you answer anything less than 10, you don't know who Jesus is. You don't know the gospel. Don't give me your false humility. that says, well, I don't know, I'm a seven, I'm an eight, I'm not perfect. Exactly, that's why you need a savior and that's why your savior has come. 
If you are trusting in yourself, you should not be a seven. You should be a negative 10. But if you have trusted in the provision of God, you've seen that God has with power declared him to be who he said he was through the resurrection. You can know. And it's got nothing to do with you. You chosen of God. Why would God reveal that to you? Why would he spark in you the ability to know him? I don't know. I don't know. But if he has, don't you think you should sing? Don't you think you should follow? Don't you think you should tell? John did an amazing job last week of of putting up here um, that slide that says um, what happens in salvation, right? That that when when you're saved, Okay, you're being sanctified and you are sent. You're still here on earth and you are driven to respond to the mission. If you're not responding to the mission, it'll make you wonder what you know. It is possible to think that you are saved and not be. Listen, children. If you are a 10 in your response and yet you are not attentive to the word of God, it should concern you. If you say, I'm certain I'm going to heaven, why? Because I know the story. I want to let you know something. You might have what I would call a demonic faith and not what I would call a dynamic faith. Let me explain that to you because a dynamic faith and a demonic faith are two very different things, okay? There's a difference between professing who Jesus is and possessing a relationship with him. There's a difference between a true false faith and a true faith. A true false faith is, I believe that Jesus is the son of God. I believe he died on the cross. I believe he was raised from the dead. That's true. A true faith is, and it has radically changed me. Well, what's the change? Jesus and that truth has changed my everything. It's changed the way I respond to sin. Now when I sin, I'm not just upset when I get caught. Now when I sin... I'm grieved because I know that I've been off mission for that moment. And the father who loves me, you set me in a great way. And I'm no longer a slave to that sin. I've given myself back over to it. And so what do I do? I confess. I agree. That was wrong. That was sin. That was me still being in the process of being sanctified. I'm not yet glorified. I'm going to stand firm and know that I'm redeemed by the gospel. I'm going to repent. I'm going to turn back and begin to walk. I'm going to forsake that sin. I'm going to confess it to others so I might be healed, grafted back into the body. I'm going to make every amends I can. And I'm going to then order my life in every way that I can that I may not fall back in to that painful way. It should concern you if you say, no, God just made me this way and he's okay with who I am as a sinner. Mm -mm. No, no. We don't make churches for liars and say it's okay to be a liar. We don't make churches for people who are still defining their gender or their sexual preference by their desire and say they love and know God. No, no, no. What do I say is a demonic faith? I say it's a demonic faith for this reason. You believe it's true about Jesus. James chapter two, verse 19. You believe that God is one. Well, you do well. Well, even the demons believe that. Were you here the second week of the essential series? Did you get that correct about the Trinity? About equality and distinction and diversity. Did you get that right? Way to go. The demons are absolutely clear on the Trinity. They are absolutely lock solid on the person of Jesus Christ. 
and yet they themselves do not know. You believe, it says in James 2.19, that God is one you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. Can I just show you something? Do you want to know who's got the best theology in all of the Bible? I mean, in all of the Bible. It's not Paul in his writing of Romans. Paul's still seeing through a mirror dimly, even though God revealed to him things that men could know. And so he, he is a, a vessel through which the perfect word of God is brought. Paul didn't possess that in himself. He possessed the spirit and the spirit gave it to him. But you want to know who has the best theology, the best Christology, the best angiology, the best harmatology, which is the study of sin, the best theodicy, which is the study of justice, the best eschatology, which is the study of end times. Do you want to know who it is? It is demons. They have a true false faith. They are not at all confused. How about this? Uh, Matthew 8, 29. They cried out saying, what business do we have with each other, Jesus? You son of God. This is chapters before the disciples knew who he was. Have you come here to torment us before the time? I've already said it. That is a correct theology. That is a correct angiology. That is a correct Christology. That is a correct harmatology, theodicy, and eschatology. How do we know if it's truly ours? We know it's ours because we walk with him. We repent of our sin. We deal with our sin. We are being sanctified. We call sin, sin. We don't justify it. We're thankful we've been justified. James 2.17 is this really confusing, troubling verse. It's out there, which talks about, says you say that you have um, a faith without works. No, that's a dead faith. That's not true biblical belief. When you have faith without itself. What it's saying here is our faith worked out. We don't work for our salvation, but people that are saved work out their salvation. Your faith justifies, not you. Your outworking of faith proves you have a faith. If you don't ever work out your faith, if you never walk like God is good, repent from sin and call sin, sin and agree with God, then all that says is you have a true false faith, not a true faith. That's what James is saying. He's not contradicting Paul at all. You are justified by faith and your faith then justifies that you have faith by going to work. We are saved by grace through faith alone, but the faith which saves is never alone. Can I lose it? Can I lose my salvation? Well, the answer to that is no, if you have it. Because when you say you can lose your salvation, what you're really saying is, not that you're a bad sheep, what you're saying is you got a lousy shepherd. John chapter 10, verse 27, Jesus. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. If you can lose your salvation, you have a lousy shepherd. He's a liar. Not only him, but in verse 29, my father, chapter 10 of John, my father who has given them to me is greater than everybody and greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of his hand. Romans chapter eight, Paul says, I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, including you created thing, that by grace through faith has come to know the true God, can do anything that would cause you to lose your salvation, except to be deluded about the fact that you had it to begin with. Whew. 
How great a salvation. Can I just do this with you? What you need to see from this book from beginning to end, you have God seeking you. Man never seeks God. The second that man sinned, what he did is through his own works, try to cover his shame. God said, that ain't gonna work. Man didn't seek God. The very first words of God to a sinner, Adam, where are you? Do you know you're in a bad place? Do you know you're dark? Do you know you're trying to work, cover yourself in a way that will never cover yourself? I'm gonna make provision for you, Adam. If you have faith to receive it, I'm gonna redeem you. A little bit later, another guy brought a gift to God that God said is not an acceptable gift. And so that guy committed murder. What's God do with Cain? He pursues Cain. Cain? Cain doesn't respond like Adam, and so sin continues to multiply. A little later, there was a pagan descendant of Cain named Abraham. And God sought him and said, Abraham, I'm gonna teach you who I am, and through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed, just like me. Except that Messiah is not gonna come from me. I come from the same faith as Abraham. But God wants to bless the nations through me. I have been blessed to be a blessing. I'm here on mission. Abraham had a series of descendants and they consistently uh, didn't do well and eventually God sent to them Moses who taught them truth and showed them the righteousness of God. He gave them a law and they could never meet the law. The law is not bad, but we are and we could never attain to it. It was to teach us about the holiness of God. What God did in his grace is he made provision for lawless people. One of the things he did after he gave them that law is he built into that law a system through ritual and priests and festivals and remembrances that there would be an anticipation of God's ultimate provision that would come. It was called the tent of meeting. The tent of meeting looked basically like this. About, I don't know, 30 yards long, maybe 15 yards wide. This is the tent of meeting. It later became a physical place. It was a tabernacle uh, a number of years after the tent of meeting traveled through the wilderness. And then eventually after David's reign, Solomon built a tabernacle. But this is what was in the tent of meeting. Let me just show you this. You guys cannot obey the law. And so what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna give you, when you walk into the tent of meeting, this is where your king lives. There's an altar of burnt offering. There is a laver, a bronze laver, where you're washed and cleansed, the priest is, who will represent you to move into the holy place where there's a lampstand that talks about the light of the world. There is bread that talks about the provision in this world. There is an altar of incense where prayers go up to be pleasing to God. And then you can move into the very presence of God where the word of the Lord is and where God's spirit dwelt in the midst of the people. You know what's so great about this? is all of this is fulfilled ultimately in Christ. I'm not gonna show you that just yet, but let me just tell you this. For centuries, the people of Israel trusted that God would provide for them deliverance. Meanwhile, they're going through this laborious sacrificial system. It's a dark time. They could never really do it. In fact, they lost heart that God was who he said he was. They lost heart that they should really walk with him and obey him. And they were sent to bondage. They came back, and this time when they came back, There really was no more revelation from God. No more prophets were sent. And for 400 years, God was. Persia eventually was overtaken by Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great had some sons that basically split up the kingdom. Egypt came back to reign. The Ptolemies oppressed them. Eventually, a Syrian king named Antiochus came and he was over them. And then his son, Antiochus Epiphanes, tried to eradicate Jews from the face of the earth. In a moment, there were some Jews that rebelled against him a little bit and came up and tried to drive him out of the temple. And for a few years, things were okay. And then Julius Caesar came and wiped out the Maccabees and they were oppressed again. 
and it was dark. 400 years earlier, God had said that I'm going to send my messenger. He'll come and he'll clear the way before me. He'll tell you who I am and he'll restore the temple. Isaiah said that um, you guys are going to live in darkness for a while, but I'm going to send into the darkness a great light. And then all of a sudden, all of a sudden came Christmas. And we're going to find this out about Jesus. Let me just show you that temple again. All of a sudden into this world came Jesus, the Lamb of God, who was the sacrifice. And we're washed by the blood of the Lamb and cleansed so that we can move into the very holy place where we're reminded that Jesus is the light of the world, that he is the bread of life and our sustenance, that we are having him continually be our intercessor before the Lord, that I'm the means, Father, through which they can enter with boldness into this holy place because he's our high priest. We haven't gotten rid of the law. It's been fulfilled in Jesus. And we have been saved. And oh, what singing. The angels could not believe what God has done. God himself has gone to man into the darkness and saved them. My friends, we are on mission to talk about that salvation. And if we are people that just come in here and glibly go through some ritual and then march out and live base lives, we have not understood the truth of what happened that holy night. If you notice how dark the room is, well, here comes the light of the world. Somebody come and come to the candle that represents Christ. Take that truth and light it to another. Spread that hope in this dark room. Because what happened at Christmas was holy. And we are his holy nation. And we have been sent. Let's stand and sing.